It's actually the music I come out of my bedroom to every morning. You should try it, it's pretty cool. We're going to open up with our text this morning, so if you would, please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Reading verses 6 through 12. 1 Timothy, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant to Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So we're in the the second week of this three-week emphasis uh, focusing on God's launching a new kingdom. This is a a mission focus, and, and each week we're looking at specific ways that God is calling us to love our neighbors. And this week, we're going to be looking at loving our neighbors by making disciples, Now, if you've been a Christian for a fair amount of time, disciples, disciple-making should be pretty common language to you. After all, this is the the central command given to us by Christ, the Lord of our lives, as to how we are to be spending our lives, living this explicit call in Matthew 28 to go go therefore and make disciples of the nations. So like I said, pretty familiar. But if you're not a Christian, or maybe you haven't been one for very long, this actually may be fairly strange language because disciple, discipleship really isn't used much at all in our society. But there is a a close pop culture parallel that that might actually help us understand what we're going to be talking about this morning. And, And that is the relationship between a Jedi master and a Padawan, just essentially a disciple. But that's actually a fairly apt picture of what we're talking about, as well as points us to the background of our text today, because we're we're studying 1 Timothy, that's written by Paul to Timothy, and so this is called a pastoral epistle, so this is a, a letter written by a pastor to a pastor about how to be a pastor, but much of what is said in this book, especially in our text this morning, can also be said of disciple making. In other words, this is how a disciple makes other disciples, and The reason I can say that as opposed to just sort of forcing the text to say what I want it to say is because Paul and Timothy were were one of the all-time Jedi Padawan master, uh, Jedi master Padawan relationships in history. I mean, if anybody in the Christian faith was a Jedi master, it's Paul. He's sort of the Yoda of Christians. And as such, he took disciple making extremely seriously to the point of inviting Timothy, you can read about this in Acts 16, along with him on his second missionary journey in which Timothy witnessed firsthand how how Paul uh, taught and preached and lived. 
And then he sent him out in his stead in 1 Corinthians 4, 16, to the church in Corinth. He says, that's why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Paul invited Timothy into his life to hear him preach and to watch him live. And then he sent him out to be an example in his preaching and his living And that is essentially what discipleship, or at least this particular aspect of discipleship is that we're going to be focusing on. And this text written by a mentor to a disciple can also encourage us and how we can go about this. But before we dive into our text, since we're going to be talking about discipleship, I thought it would be a good idea to just define what a disciple is briefly in the first place. And so we would say at its most basic, a disciple is someone who follows after the life and teaching of another. But obviously, we don't just follow after the life and teaching of anyone, but specifically of Christ. So specifically, being a disciple of Christ means a couple things. First, it means knowing Christ and his word. And second, it means progressively becoming more like Christ, growing in Christ's likeness. But I would say it actually doesn't even stop there because we don't want to just make disciples of Christ. We want to make mature disciples of Christ. I want to add that qualifier. In fact, I'll up the language here and say we need to be making, we absolutely must be making mature disciples of Christ. And the reason being, of course, is not only that this is a a call on our lives from the Lord of our lives, so that means we, we can't just ignore it if he's our Lord, but in addition to that, this has maybe never been more important, at least in this country, than it is right now for us to be taking this seriously. As our culture grows increasingly hostile and antagonistic to those who hold to a Christian worldview we're going to be experiencing. In fact, we already are experiencing increasing pressure, not only in challenging God's word, but there there will increasingly be a price to pay for being a Christian, to just holding to biblical truth that just a few years ago was acceptable, but it no longer is. And because of that, if we are not rooted deeply, we run the risk of getting awfully wobbly, if not outright abandoning the faith, as you guys were just considering across the way with John, or like many have done, compromising, kind of trying to make the truth of Scripture compatible with the world, which never works and always just ends up in disaster. That can't be us. We must take this seriously. We must commit to answering the call to be mature disciples who are making mature disciples. But... Not only that, an an additional motivation, and by the way, some of you might kind of feel like I just kind of hopped and skipped over the the command in our lives. So I, I do really want to emphasize the fact that Christ commanded this of us is the central motivation. This is a command, which means I'll do this if I feel like it isn't really a valid option. The one who bought you with his blood is telling you this is how you are to be spending your life. So I don't want anybody to think that I was just kind of hopping and skipping over that. That is the primary motivation. But an additional motivation that I hope to encourage us in this morning is that this is part of where the abundant life that Christ promises is found. And that's true when we obey God generally, but specifically in this, when we obey Christ in this, that means we grow deeper in him and his word, which then means 
Our love grows deeper and our joy grows deeper and our peace, our walk, our trust, our reliance on him. And this is kind of one of the truly unique aspects of this. The deeper our joy is in seeing those same things in the people that we're discipling. And then all of us together get to enjoy each other around Christ for eternity. So this is part of that path to the abundant life that Christ promises. So let's finally get into our text Paul begins this section in verse 6 by saying, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Again, this is written to a pastor, but this should really make any true disciples' ears perk up, not just pastors. Because if you're truly saved, if you're truly a disciple of Christ, that means you desire nothing more than to be a good servant, to please Christ. So then, what are these things that will make us good servants? Well, he answers that in the second half of verse 6 by continually putting before the brothers, uh, just a euphemism for other believers, the words of the faith and the good doctrine that Timothy had followed because he'd been trained in it, in large part, through Paul's discipleship. So this is the first truth we find in our text in how we love our neighbors by making disciples. We know it begins and ends with the word. This is the absolute foundation of how we mature both as disciples ourselves and how we help others mature in Christ. Everything begins with sinners around. The foundation is scripture, right doctrine, the word. You quite literally cannot mature as a disciple of Christ unless you are ever deepening in the word. It's actually an impossibility. So this is crucial for us as we take seriously making disciples. That means before we start take, uh, talking about making other disciples, we need to make sure that we are maturing as disciples ourselves. And so this section is full of imperatives, which means it's challenging us, and this is a challenge for some. And the challenge is that, that Scripture can't just be something that we just kind of dabble in. We can't make time for all sorts of other things, but then, you know, open up our Bibles five minutes a week. Rather, we need to be, like it says in 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you grow up into salvation. This is the, the perfect analogy the Spirit gives us here. For those of you who have had kids, you know how this works. For those of you who haven't had kids this is what you have coming your way. When, when you bring your, your precious baby infant home, they don't just politely ask for food every once in a while. They scream bloody murder for you to feed them. And then you do, and we're good for about three hours. And then they're screaming their heads off bloody murder as if they've never been fed in their entire lives, and if you don't feed me now, I'm going to die. That's what scripture says we should be like. Constantly craving, striving, wanting more of the word. Now, this is where typically people might respond to something like, yeah, but, but what about when I don't feel like it? You know, I, I struggle with wanting to read my Bible, so I, I rarely do. You know, what do I do then? What, what do you got for me? Well, just sticking with the feeding analogy, I guess maybe I'd start by asking you to consider, do you do the same physically eating? I mean, do you ever miss a meal? Do you go days, weeks without eating, just eating a little bit here and there? Of course not. 
You eat every single day, multiple times a day, because you need to. Now, if you do that for your physical body, it's important to do that, but if you do that for your physical body that's going to decay and return to dust, why don't you put the same priority in your spiritual feeding, which, of course, is eternal. And, of course, the answer back to that is, well, because I feel hungry, so I eat, or I enjoy eating, so I do. I don't always feel like or enjoy reading my Bible, so I don't. Man, I know it's important. I'm just being honest, man. I just struggle with this. I need some help. So here's what I'd offer in that case. Jocko's advice. I've listened to the Jocko Willink podcast for years. He's a former Navy SEAL uh, stud that's just, you know, accomplished all sorts of things and, and revered by many for kind of this disciplined life he leads and all he's accomplished because of it. And so because of that, a bunch of his, his uh, you know, followers and listeners and so on will, will ask him, you know, I, I, I want to work out more. How do, you know, I, I stop and I start. I can't, keep, I can't keep it going. How do I work out more? Help me work out more. I want to start eating better. How do I do that? I heard a guy say, you know, I want to stop biting my nails. I've, I put on that polish that makes it so you want to throw up and I still just won't stop biting my nails. How do, how do I do that? All these random things. And I don't know why people continue to ask him because he, he gives the same answer every single time. His answer is, you want to start working out more? Awesome. Start working out more. Want to start eating better? Great. Start eating better. It's funny, the, the guy with the nail polish said, I've tried every trick in the book, and that actually worked. I just needed somebody to call me out and say, just do it. That's kind of what we're saying here. It's not about whether you feel like it. Like, like Pastor Robert said last week, I don't know where this whole thing started with, I'll obey if I feel like it. That has absolutely nothing to do with anything. This is something we need to do. So we need to stop that, and you need to just start reading your Bible. Prioritize it every single day. Now, you may go days, weeks, months where you don't really feel like it, you kind of feel like you're going through the motions. Fine, that happens to everybody. Go through the motions. Even if you don't feel like anything is happening, it is. And I can guarantee that because God guarantees that. This is what he does his work through, his word. He is working in you as you are reading his word. You're knowing him better. You're knowing his word more. So just prioritize it. And the cool thing is when we do, like we said at the beginning, our, our, our love for him and his word starts to increase, which then starts that cycle of us wanting his word more. So all of this builds to the second truth of loving our neighbors by making disciples, and that, that is not only must the word be central, regular, but we must be continually maturing in it. It's actually not the same point as the first one. And I know this from firsthand experience because I was the kid who I read my chapter a day of the Bible for years into my 20s. Read my chapter a day and that was good. That was fine. But I don't have time for the story now, but I got into my 20s and there was kind of this heresy taking over a bunch of friends that I knew and so on. And, and I realized at that point that I didn't really have enough biblical or theological understanding to even understand the heresy, let alone to argue against it and help people out of it and so on. And that just bummed me out and freaked me out. I was like, how am I reading my Bible every day and I don't, I don't even know this? And I just set out to make sure that didn't happen again. Now, obviously, there, was, there still was benefit to my reading the Bible every day. I'm not taking back my first point. 
But I needed to take the second step and realize that this wasn't just a check-the-box thing and I go on with my day, but I'm actually spending time in God's eternal word to know him more. So if I'm reading Ephesians, I just needed to stop and say, who's writing this? To whom? Why? What's happening here? When? What's the background? If I'm studying through Romans and I come across justification, which Martin Luther says the entire faith stands and falls on that word, maybe I should spend some time actually understanding what that word means instead of just going on, pressing into maturity, taking that seriously as opposed to, like I said, just checking the box. And the reason this is so significant to not just be prioritizing reading the word but actually maturing in it is I don't know if you've ever noticed but scripture actually isn't too kind to Christians who remain immature. It doesn't offer us much comfort. It actually admonishes us. You read things like 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul says, kind of similar language, he'd love to feed them solid food, not milk, but they weren't ready. They were still infants in Christ after all this time, and it showed in their lives. Read Hebrews 6, which similarly says, by this time, you guys should be teachers, but you're still babies that I have to feed milk to, verse 14, because solid food is for the mature. Now, I know we live in a safe space culture, and all this might sound a little harsh, but I'm, I'm being direct, and really it's God's word being direct, because this is deadly serious. We must take this seriously in our, in our lives. As, as Paul's language is pointing to, we, you know, we guide, we encourage, we just flat out make our kids do all sorts of things that they don't want to or don't like doing. And it's because we know it's not loving to let our kids remain infantile. We've all seen those movies or maybe have firsthand experience of, you know, the guy in, in high school who graduated five years ago and he was super cool. But now he's kind of starting to get a beer belly and he still lives with his mom and he still goes to the football games on Friday night and he thinks he's still cool but everybody else is kind of looking at him like he's a little bit pathetic because he kind of is pathetic. He's stuck. He's not progressing. We understand that in that context but, but we should understand it spiritually. So again, I encourage you, press deeper. Now if you need help with how to do that, study aids or expositional sermons to, to study through or, or whatever, there's, there's Plenty of people around here who can help you with that. You don't need to, to go it alone as far as that is concerned. But you do need to prioritize this in your life. Constantly press into the love and knowledge of God and his word. It's the reason for our existence. And on the subject of making disciples, again, this is what we need to be doing in order for us to be making other mature disciples. So that's what's alluded to in verse 6 where Paul references Timothy's being trained by the words of faith, that, that word the Spirit's writing through Paul, training is obviously intentional. It should make us think of physically training. There are, are a lot of similarities between those two things. So, you know, if you were looking to get in shape physically, you know, you're looking for a trainer, you're, you're probably not going to look for the guy who's, you know, just clearly out of shape. Man, it's fine if he's out of shape, but if he's holding himself... Uh, out as a trainer, that's, that's probably not who you want to look to. You want someone who, who looks like they know what they're doing, who can help you look like them, that can be an example for you to achieve. They know and practice what they preach. And so as disciples, we take seriously the command to make disciples, meaning that we're maturing as disciples ourselves. So wherever we are in our walk, the fact that this is never-ending, 
Wherever we are, that's how this is kind of one of those parallels between the spiritual and the physical training. And that is, I, I, can, I can work out and discipline myself to the point that, that I look like Thor from the Avengers. But if, if, I, if I do that, if I achieve that, I can't then say, I've done it, I've achieved what I wanted to, I'm here, I can now just sit back and relax, I can stop working out, I can start eating whenever I want and watch Netflix, I'm good now. If I do that, I'm eventually going to look like Thor from Endgame. Some of you might know what that is. That wasn't my favorite Thor. Although it did produce one of my all-time favorite memes. They had a picture of fat Thor and it said, my entire life I've wanted to look like Thor and I've finally achieved it. <laughs> the point being, you have to keep training in order to keep the gains that, that you've made and, and hopefully continue to get more. And it's the same with the spiritual. We, we never arrive. We never can think, you know, I'm... I'm a pastor, I'm a Biola professor, I've been a Christian for 60 years, I'm, I'm good now, I can just kind of take my, my foot off the gas and check out. And that's even more true in the spiritual than it is in the physical, because there's limits to what we can achieve physically, but there's no limit to training in the spiritual, because we're training in the eternal word to know an infinite God that we will never come to the end of. So mature disciples are always pressing deeper into maturity, always training more until Christ takes us home. And one of the results of this, and thus one of the hallmarks of a mature Christian, is godliness, which is the third truth of loving our neighbor by making disciples. That is, we mature in the word, which manifests in maturing living or Godliness. We find this in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, Paul reminds us that a mature disciple isn't duped by heretical teachings, another benefit of this, but back to the training reference is instead constantly training in godliness. And then he, he says, everyone's favorite verse to get out of exercising, that bodily training is of, is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way, not only for those in this life, but the next, which actually isn't really an excuse to not take your health seriously. The point is, in comparison, physical training has some value, but the spiritual has never any value because it benefits us both in this life and the next into an eternity. And so he specifically says that we train, we discipline ourselves, Jocko's advice, for godliness, or we might say holiness. And this is absolutely one of the main goals and results of discipling, both for ourselves and to those that we're discipling. discipling. Godliness, holiness, obedience to the word. I said at the beginning, making a disciple of Christ means two things, knowing Christ and his word and progressively becoming more like him. And becoming more like Christ in, in, a, in a large way really means becoming more holy. As it says in 1 Peter 1.16, be holy as God is holy. But again, that happens as a result of the first part of our maturing in Christ and his word. So essentially, we live godly and holy lives by obeying the word that we know so well because we're constantly training in it. That's the cycle. And the reason that godliness obedience to the word is an important goal and result of any discipling relationship is because it is a mark of a true Christian. 
One of the most straightforward statements of this is found in John 14, 15, where Jesus says, you are my friends. How we love that verse. We make songs about that verse. What a friend we have in Jesus. But he continues. You're my friends if, qualifying statement. You're my friends not just because you say you are. You're my friends if you do what I command you. So in no uncertain terms, Christ says we're his if we obey his word. Now, of course, our obedience, our holiness doesn't save us. It's proof that we're saved, sort of like oranges, orange, excuse me, oranges don't make it an orange tree. It's just proof it's an orange tree. But if there are never any oranges, it's either not an orange tree or it's dead. So part of our responsibility as disciples is to help those that we are discipling mature in the love and knowledge of God and his word that then overflows into a life of increasing holiness that is expressed in obedience to God's word and our neighbors seeing that in us and glorifying him. This might sound kind of weird, but stick with me. Years ago, I, I, I actually found myself a little bit jealous of Buddhist monks. I'm sure you've seen these guys in photos or maybe firsthand. Uh, you know, shaved heads and bright orange robes, and you know, they're, just, they're set apart visibly. They don't look like the rest of the world. You just look at them, and you know, ah, oh, that's a holy man who has dedicated himself to his faith. And, and it kind of bothered me that that wasn't the case with Christians. You know, we're, we're, we, we kind of look the same and, you know, dress the same and drive the same cars and live in the same neighborhoods. But, but then it dawned on me, no, no, this is what separates us. And it's far more significant. Our godliness, the way we're living, like it says in Romans 14, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So we may not have orange robes, but we're clothed in righteousness, holiness, godliness. That's what separates us. And, and it's easier in some ways to stick out in holiness than ever before. Marry someone of the opposite sex and stay married happily. Have kids and raise them to love Jesus. Talk about subversive. Use your tongue and social media accounts to build up rather than to tear down. Show up to work on time and work hard with joy. Talk to my wife about how hard it is to find employees to do that. Don't use the F word every third word or hopefully maybe even not at all. Instead of a message of, of self-love, preach and show Christ's love. Instead of finding your identity in your sexual preference, find it in Christ. Instead of living for your glory and building your brand, live for God's glory. Put on Christ and display his holiness. Moving on to verse 10, we have a tremendous reminder about what it is that empowers us in all this effort, this training that we've been talking about. And that's the fourth truth of loving our neighbor by making disciples. We toil and strive, but we always remember it's not in our power, but in hope. This is one of the most glorious truths of living the Christian life. Again, Paul's issuing a series of imperatives here, reminding us that, that we toil and strive. He's intentionally using training language here to make the point. The point being, this is not passive. This isn't going through the motions. This isn't half-hearted living. We are to give maximal 
effort were to give everything we have to the point of exhaustive toiling, yet ultimately we don't do it on our own power, but we do it in God's power as he's continually fueling us through his word and the spirit. We're even reminded of this with with where we started in the Great Commission where, where Christ commands us to Go, therefore, make disciples of the nations, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then he says this wonderful truth, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Christ sends us out, but not on our own. He tells us to teach the nations, but we teach them his word in his power. He is with us. Maybe the, the greatest Summary of this is in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. I love that. Similar language, toiling, struggling, make everybody mature, but then he says he's doing it all in the power, the energy, the strength that God is working through him for his glory. And of course, of course, it's the same with us. Discipling is joyful, but it's hard. It's difficult. It requires everything we have. And while that's true, ultimately we know that he is with us. He is doing his work through us. And one of the, one of the specific ways that, that we do this, that we we, we live with our hope fixed on him and that being the thing that energizes us is, is exactly that, what Paul says in verse 10. He was doing this because his hope was constantly fixed on God who saves. That's where his hope was fixed, even through his toiling and his striving. And it's a good reminder for us that we're not striving in vain. We've been put in the unbelievable position of God sending us on the most significant mission we could ever devote our lives to, actually using us to save and mature people, and he guarantees that he will do that as we strive in his hope. Just stop and think about the magnificence of this calling. How does Christ choose to see his mission through to make disciples of the nations? Through us, through his disciples. But make no mistake, As Christ said in Matthew 16, 18, he builds his church, not us. Luke 19, 40 says, I can use the rocks to declare my praises if I wanted to. So it's not that he needs us, yet amazingly he uses us as the vessels through which he makes other disciples, which is why this is by far the most significant way we could be spending our lives. And as I said, a part of the motivation for our toiling is the certainty of Christ seeing his promises through. And by the way, that's what biblical hope is. It's certainty. Now, we usually think of hope, we kind of, maybe the world's definition of hope is, you know, something like, well, it all seems lost, but we have hope, which, you know, means basically we're hosed, but hopefully by some magical thing, something will happen and some good can come out of this. And, you know, sometimes, honestly, it can feel like that in the world as, as Christians. Make it feel like that sometimes, especially as it gets darker and darker. So maybe it's good to have a reminder that that's actually not biblical hope. Biblical hope is defined for us in, in Hebrews 11.1, 1, which says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So hope is connected to faith. 
We hope for the promises of God through Scripture to actually happen, yet, again, that hope is connected to faith, which means it's not hoping upon hope it's going to happen. It's the assurance that the things hoped for, the conviction of it happening. And that is because God said it's going to happen, so it's 100% guaranteed that it's going to happen. So that's why Paul says in verse 10, we toil and strive, not just wishing upon a star that we're going to have some success, but we have our hope set on God who we know will see his promises through. He will do his saving work through us. It's guaranteed. It may be difficult. It may not happen the way we think it should, but it is assured. And so we continue to strive and toil and joy because our hope is fixed on God who will save, who will make disciples. He will see his promises through. So that's why I said this just, there's no greater way we could be spending our life, our time than, than this. Now, with all that ground laid, we, we come to kind of where all of this has been leading to, the, the fifth way that we love our neighbors by making disciples. And that is we intentionally teach and live as an example of a mature disciple of Christ that others can imitate. So we see an excellent encapsulation of making disciples in verses 11 and 12. It's, it's essentially what we've been saying up to this point. We make disciples by verse 11, teaching the word, and then we make disciples by verse 12, living the word. So we've talked a lot about the teaching the word part up to this point, how important that is. And before we, we, we move on from there, I, I just wanted to offer a couple of thoughts for, for some who might be hearing that and, and might be saying, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm really ready for this. You know, if I, if I invite somebody out to work through a book of the Bible or whatever it is together, they're, they're going to have, they're going to have questions that I don't have the answers to. I, I mean, you know, you're a pastor, it's easy for you, but it's not really that easy for me. And, and if that's you, like I said, let me hopefully offer some encouragement. And the first is, you know, anybody who's ever taught anything you know, you never learned more about a subject than when you had to teach about it. So the, the irony is this could actually be one of the things that could actually help propel you in your maturity as you're, you know, studying, like I referenced earlier, studying through Ephesians with somebody over coffee, and you're taking seriously preparing for that every week doesn't mean you have every answer. Nobody has to have every answer. But you will grow probably as much or more than, than the person that you're, you're investing in. And I, again, I know that from firsthand experience. Secondly, maybe you're actually not really where you should be. And this can be a motivation to change that. Either by pursuing someone to disciple you and or by like we've been talking about you yourself just taking seriously growing in the word and theology like you never had before let this be a motivation for that and by the way i've i've referenced kind of this one-on-one jedi master padawan relationship multiple times now uh let me just take a quick aside and clarify something because i've kind of been equating that to discipleship up to this point and so it's important to know that that biblically, making disciples includes everything from going to the nations and preaching the gospel to inviting people into church to worshiping together in the church to preaching on Sunday and in 
men's ministry and women's ministry and ABCs, all of that, and meeting with people one-on-one. All of that is part of the disciple-making process, and, and all of that, for the most part, really best functions when it functions within the context of the local church. So it's important to, to emphasize that. But this particular aspect of disciple, discipling that we're emphasizing this week, this kind of one-on-one relationship, is a key pivotal aspect of discipling. And so as we're talking about this, it's just important to know that this doesn't necessarily mean just you know, grabbing somebody and hanging out and getting coffee, which is great to do. I encourage you to do that too. But that's not really what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about hanging out and getting coffee to study through God's word together. Listen to a sermon during the week and then bring your notes and how you might apply that to life. Going through a theology book together. There's just, there's a dozen different ways that, that this could look. But the point is, like we've been saying, it's centered around growing in the word. So that's what, that we're, we're really encouraging everyone to take that seriously. And, and again, the, the foundation of that is the word. But we also started this point that is as spectacularly significant as the emphasis of the teaching of the word is. We also, equally important, is the living of the word, as verse 12 says. Discipleship is always both of those things. We're to exemplify the life of a disciple to imitate, both in our love and knowledge of the word and in our living of the word. But again, here's where people can get really intimidated and and think, imitate me? No way, man. I'm not somebody worth imitating. And so again, if this is another one of these stumbling blocks, let me offer a couple thoughts. And, And the first is, uh, you may be saying that because you're humble, and that, that's happened. I've had a few people say that to me over the years, and I, I look at them and just say, man, I appreciate your humility, but you, you are so ready to take this step. So it could just be that you're humble, but kind of like what we said before, maybe, maybe it's true, and maybe this can be an encouragement, kind of a wake-up call for you to start living a life worthy of imitation, Paul says things like this all the time. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that's not just a special call for Paul. That's for all of us. Like we, we talked about, we're all to put on Christ. We're all called to be holy as God is holy. We're all called to be maturing beyond infants. So if we're not taking that seriously, maybe this can be the prompt for you to start taking that seriously. But the second bit of an encouragement I'd like to offer is this absolutely does not mean you have to be perfect. Of course not. If that were true, then none of us would qualify. I certainly wouldn't. Back to the physical training analogy and are are probably not wanting to seek out the in-game Thor trainer if we're looking to to get in shape. But that also doesn't mean you have to find a trainer who's, you know, an elite, flawless fitness model who's on the cover of men's or you know, women's fitness every other month. That's, that's not who you have to be. You don't have to be perfect. But you do have to be an example of someone who is striving for holiness, not making excuses for why you're not holy. And actually, a key part of discipleship is as this person that you're discipling 
maybe sees you sin. You can be an example of how a disciple asks forgiveness for sin and then takes actions to fight that sin to the death because you hate it. You're a living illustration that you don't coddle or justify sin. You kill it. You mortify it. And, of course, you should be an example to imitate in the ways that you don't sin, the ways that you do look different from the world or maybe even a newer believer. And Paul offers some practical ways, practical examples to imitate in verse 11, beginning with speech. We should look significantly different from the world, and how we use our mouths is definitely one of those ways. Don't don't gossip, don't engage in crude discussions, don't tear others down. But Colossians 4.4, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So much of our, our culture's speech has become so crude and crass, and so we should be an example of Christ in, in how we use our speech differently. Another example Paul gives us to imitate is our conduct, which just relates to our overall life. Don't live in such a way as to bring reproach upon Christ in his church. This goes back to putting on Christ instead of the orange monk's robes. And, and a lot of that overall living is, is mentioned in the next three areas that Paul mentions, love, faith, and purity. We love others as Christ loves us. We continually live in faith and trust of Christ in all things rather than ourselves, our circumstances, the things that, that we consume on our screens, the way we use our bodies exemplify purity. So all that's part of the path of discipleship, making mature disciples through the teaching and living of the word as we are continually doing that in our own lives. So now to the application that I've referenced, and I've already given you what the application is. We've, we've read Paul's imperative to Timothy to strive in this. And so, again, we're extending this imperative to all of us, for all of us to be taking this seriously, to take the initiative in investing in somebody else's life who's not as far along on the path as Christianity as you are, to mature them in the faith, to seek someone out in a one-on-one or one-on-two, whatever, relationship. Now, if, if you need help with what might that look like? How do I structure a meeting? What, what's some books or whatever study aids that, that we can go through? Again, like I said earlier, there's just there's so many people around here who can help you with that. We, we would love to help you with that. But when it comes to, to actually entering into a relationship, we, we would really encourage you, rather than to kind of looking at the leadership to connect you, for you to pray about this, have your eyes open, and then take the initiative in asking someone if they would like to go out for coffee and open up the word together and go from there and trust God to do his work. We're asking you to take the initiative in that. I, I, am, I am extremely passionate about this. And, and the reason why, beyond it being a command of my Lord, but the reason why is my life as a Christ follower has been profoundly shaped and impacted by, by a few key people, but, but one person in particular, inserting himself into my life when I was not asking for it. And it completely changed the trajectory of my life. So let me conclude this morning by maybe just offering a personal testimony as to the power of this. 
When I was 16, just turned 16, uh, my, one weekend my, my dad left. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't just divorce my wife. He abandoned the family. He just kind of left me and my brother and my mom. And I was close to my dad, and, and I, I was distraught and confused and angry and didn't really know what to do or where to turn. And my, my church still had a Sunday night service at the time, and so I went to the Sunday night service, and I don't really remember very much about what happened in the service, but at the end of the service, I was hanging out in the back talking to my friends, and in the front was a guy that I'd seen a couple times, but I'd never talked to him, named Don Springer. He told me later that he, you know, just felt compelled, like he needed to come introduce himself, and so he did, and invited me out to coffee later, I wasn't drinking coffee at 16 yet, I guess, but... (laughs) Um, invited me out to lunch, and, and uh, that just started this long relationship of him intentionally discipling me. And for years, not, not too many weeks would go by that he wouldn't invite me to, you know, go out to eat or go to the beach or, you know, go on a bike ride, or he had a place in Maui he took me to a dozen times. If you can find somebody, a mentor, take you to Maui. That's, <laughs> that's the hookups right there. But the point is, we did all sorts of things together. But no matter where we were or what we did, it was always the same. There was always time and conversation around the word and applying that word to real life, to my real life. And then there was the example of imitation as I just spent time with him. And spending time with him was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. Everywhere he went, he was just, you know, kind and gracious, and he'd just, we'd be at the beach, and he'd end up in a conversation with somebody, and pretty soon, he's preaching the gospel to them. And we go out to eat, and he's just kind to the server, and they just love him, and then pretty soon, he's preaching the gospel to them. I watched this hundreds of times, over and over and over. Everywhere he went, preaching the gospel, encouraging people in Christ, just loving people genuinely. I mean, such a genuine guy. I wasn't like, no, I never one time saw anybody just like, Dude, get away. He was just so engaging in this truly Christ-like way. I'd never seen anything like it. I still don't think I've seen anything like it. It was just one of the clearest examples that I'd ever seen at a time that I desperately needed it when my dad left. This is how a Christian man prioritizes the word and lives the word out in all of life, no matter where you are. This is what this looks like. It's, it's profound. It's overwhelming to me, actually, to, to think about the impact that was on my life. I can honestly say I have no idea. I just don't know where I would be in my relationship with Christ were it not for him. Like I said, inserting himself in my life. He was, he was so shaping to me in an imitate me way. I don't, some of you might remember back in the day the... Um, what would Jesus do bracelets? I never wore one of those, but I did find myself many times thinking, what would Don do in this situation? It's an example I'm sad to say I've never really lived up to, but I, I've tried, and I've tried specifically in this way. Since, since my late 20s, I have intentionally invested in, in guys in discipling relationships. I've imitated that example I saw in Don as Pastor Robert always says, disciples making disciples making disciples are my qualifier. Mature disciples making mature disciples making mature disciples. Now, maybe you hear that and you think, that's cool for you, but I never had that. And, and that's a bummer. But you could be that for someone else. 
And by the way, you, you, don't, you don't have to be old. You know, I mean, Dom is in his 50s. I, I, I was a teenager, and, and that's great, but it doesn't have to be that way. Like, like verse 12 says, let no one despise you for your youth. You don't necessarily even have to be older. I've discipled multiple people who were my age or, or even a little bit older than me. I remember uh, Drew Botts, I miss that guy. Uh, I remember him telling me about when he was in high school, a college friend of his older brother's who was just a couple years older. Ended up being that for him at, at a time where he was not living the way he should be as a teenager. And he saw this guy who was just a couple years older, just, again, completely changed the trajectory of his life, helping him understand this is how I live for Christ at, a, at 14 or 15 or whatever he was. So whatever your age, I would encourage you in that. But for those of you who are older, I would encourage you, please don't keep this hard-won wisdom to yourself. Use that to mature someone else. If you've had years of people teaching and pouring into you, don't be a dead end. Be a conduit of truth to help others in their walk with Christ. And if you're younger, either in age or biblical maturity, and you know that you need to be matured, seek someone out who can, who can do this. Take this seriously in your life. And then when the time comes, you turn around and do that for someone else. This is the most wonderful, this is one of the most wonderful aspects of the Christian life, that God would use us in this way. And, and, and we're just asking you to take this seriously, to glorify God and what he's going to accomplish through us, that we in this church would just live lives that scream to the world, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is life. Come, taste and see, the Lord is good. And so I leave us with these words, verse 16, which we didn't read earlier, but a nice summary of what we've talked about. Paul says, keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in this, for by, by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you don't give us this call and expect us to do it on our own, but, but that you are with us, that you're empowering us. But I pray that we would do our part. I pray that we would take this seriously. In your power and in your love, I pray that we would prioritize the word, that we would feed of it, that we would grow deep, and that it wouldn't just stay there, but that we would use that to invest into others, to proclaim your truth, that others through us would be saved, that dead hearts be made alive, that, that immature Christians would become mature Christians. You would do a powerful work in and through this church by us just simply obeying this command because we love you, not because we have to, because we want to see this work done in and through us. We're so grateful that we can rely on you, that this is your church, and we know that you will do this work, and we thank you in advance for it. We humbly submit before you, our God and our King, our very lives, our breath is yours. Please use us for your glory. Amen.